Welcome back, creeps. Hey, y'all. How's everybody? How's everybody doing tonight? <laughs> Just realized what I was saying there. Hope everybody's week is going swimmingly. Whatever day this gets released. Actually, I think as this gets released, it's going to be my birthday. Oh, happy birthday. Happy birthday to me. Yeah, we're recording it a whopping 11 days early because we're going to fly out in a few days. So just a heads up, there will be a little blank spot in episodes being released. But we have pre-recorded some Patreon bits and we're hoping to get some more stuff done while we're in Ireland. So. Yeah, check out our bits. Check out our bits. <laughs> How was your week? Uh, it was all right. So since we last recorded, like it hasn't actually been that long for us. So we have no like feedback on this episode, which is actually really weird. But we did just get some feedback on the local folktales and Irish fairy stories and stuff like that. Mm. And uh, actually, before we jump right into it, let's get right into it. Before we jump right into it, uh, I was talking to a fella at work. I don't know now that I mentioned this in the last one. Like, I don't think so. But like, I haven't told anybody at work that I do this because it's like, you know, not our type of people for the most part. But I was just randomly talking to this dude from Iraq. And he was like, I guess I had asked him like, about gin stories and stuff a few weeks ago and he randomly walked up to me and he was like i have a story about a ghost from my grandmother's house and i was like okay please yeah. tell and then he was like yeah she had these little people that lived in her basement and like as a child i was very scared to go down there because of the these little people and they as he was describing, I was like, wait, are these like, do you call them gin or ghosts or, or what? And he was like, these are ghosts, different from gin, very different. And I was like, because it, it's really starting to sound like fairies to me. He was like, yeah, kind of like fairies, but we call them ghosts. So I was like, OK, interesting. And basically the gist of it was like they would be little menaces unless you gave a little offering which in their case like for us i was telling them it would be like honey and like or even like tobacco leaves stuff like that um or whiskey maybe but yeah he was saying that his grandmother used to have the kids go down and leave an onion skin in the basement so the little people could have a rest like that's what they would use to sleep on and stuff like that so i just thought like that is so like the onion skin thing i had never heard before but the little people thing, like all of it was all the same symptoms, basically, of yeah. like typical older fairy stories or even like poltergeist stories and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was really cool. Yeah, that is cool. All the way from Iraq. And like we don't hear many stories from that like neck of the woods either. So it's kind of a little bit more almost exotic. Yeah. Flavor of ghost story, you know, mm -hmm. that's pretty much it. Spooky wise. Um, I had some other stuff that I wanted to say, but I'm going to wait until you. Oh, Give us a card. Today's card of the day is strength reverse. Today's message. Your greatest strength is in being vulnerable today. Let your defenses down. Stop hiding, especially from yourself. With a sense of unconditional self-love and compassion toward yourself, feel your feelings completely and honestly. There you go. Wow. I wonder, does that have anything to do with us calling out sick today and just... Chilling out. We're living our truth. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like, we're uh, being vulnerable today. <laughs> and actually, it's a good thing we did because we're after getting quite a bit done. 
that we yeah. wouldn't have gotten done otherwise. That's true. So I did want to say a big thank you to our Patreon members because it's actually just something that we never do. And it's not that we don't appreciate. Like we always just say, you know, thank you all for listening, being Patreon members. So, like I said, there's no actual tears. I don't think, to be honest, like we could probably do it re-upping our Patreon stuff soon. Um, but I'm going to read it off the screen. So we got Jody, Tony, KG, Christina, Nancy, Monica, Kelly, Jackie, Marie, Andrea, Ebony, Devin, Marissa, Domina, Kirsten, Cherie, Kina, right? Isn't that how we pronounce so. it? Yeah. Sorry, Kina or Kina. Uh, Nadia, Gordy, Ashley, Brianna, Meredith, Claudia, Caroline, Danny and... Oh, my, my mom is still on there, actually. So, thanks, Mom. I don't know if she realizes she's <laughs> been contributing so to us. <laughs> thanks, Mom. But yeah, we just wanted to say like a big thank you. Like, um, We do genuinely appreciate you guys signing up and just even wanting to hear us out. And like, the other thing is as well, people always, people always ask me, uh, no, but whenever people reach out to us for whatever reason, like we tend to just send them some of the bonus Patreon content anyway, because a lot of the people on there are just doing it purely to support us and they're not even watching some of the stuff. So it's like, you know, we're not like that uh, protective over it or anything, but it's definitely a much appreciated thing. And uh, yeah, so for $2 a month, you can sign up there. What else? Um, I think that's it. That's it. Yeah, let's get stuck into it. Yeah, do you want to? Mm-hmm. Do you want to get right into it? This time, I'm going to sit like this for the entire <laughs> time, okay? Because anybody who watched... So, like, we're always trying to, like, reconfigure the cameras and stuff and, like, see what works best for what episode. But, like, getting back into the habit of doing this, like, the f- the Irish episode, I, I had my head down like this the entire time. Like and a noob. I, yeah. But yeah, as I was editing it, I realized, like... You know, the whole time I just have my head down like this. I'm not like interacting with you or the camera. So last week I was like, right, I better put the th- the iPad here so I can just read off. And then Dulce was reading the whole thing like before I could actually read it out. So she's reacting ahead of time. <laughs> and I was like, come on. <laughs> so we need to find like a happy medium I'll or happy it. middle ground. All right. So this is definitely one of the more serious topics that we've ever covered to be honest and uh it's heavy just so you know heavy going yeah okay i'm in presenter mode and i'm gonna try and hold it like right here (laughs) so anyway things weren't looking so good for the folks up on the mountain when we finished up last week yeah the search had been postponed due to bad weather and the survivors were struggling to survive yeah after the first few days on the mountain some of the survivors that had literally been given up for dead we're making surprise recoveries. Um, for some, this was being able to get out of their makeshift hammocks uh, with the help of others to go and like just pee outside and do normal human kind of things. But the most notable recovery by far was that of Nando Parado. Now, I mentioned Nando briefly in last week's episode, but his mother and sister had been on the flight with him. Mm. His mom had died in the initial crash along with Nando's best friend Pancho and his sister Susanna was in a bad way. 
Now, from what the author said, it seems like Nando's strength actually came from nursing his sister. Nando was the one who was like unrecognizable. But once he finally came back around, or from the time he was coherent, he was determined to leave camp and find rescue. He like straight away was like, what is the point in sitting here waiting? Like mm. we could just, as simple as that, we could just walk out of here and get the help that we need. Yeah. Most of the other lads though, were convinced that if they just stayed put and took care of one another and rationed, they would soon be found. This was actually a point of contention within those first few days. Like some of them were trying to stay positive while others were more on the negative side of realism. Nando being one of them. They had seen a couple of planes fly overhead in those first few days and one small low-flying plane even appeared to dip its wing in acknowledgement of their presence. But all was quiet after that. And like every time something like this would happen, their spirits were like straight, like this is it boys, like, you know, get your bags, we've been saved. Mm -hmm. And then it was just countless hours of silence waiting to hear that engine come back and it never did. The positive team members argued that they had crashed very high up in the Cordillera and so helicopters would not be able to reach them, but a rescue team would be making their way up on foot. When people argued why hadn't they dropped supplies, they argued back they couldn't drop supplies out of a low-flying plane because the snow would be too deep and they wouldn't be able to find them or dig them out anyway, like the supplies. While the more negative chaps simply thought they were lost and that was that. I kind of already know what side I'd be on. <laughs> like, right, that's it. We're fucked now. <laughs> that being said, these lads didn't just sit back and give up. There was more immediate tasks to be taken care of. Water, for example, was one of the first things that demanded their attention. Now, you would think surely being surrounded by snow, right? They wouldn't need to worry about such a trivial thing. But the reality of it was that sucking on balls of ice when it's below freezing temperatures isn't ideal. It hurt their mouth. They started like they were already starting to show signs of like frostbite on their fingers and toes. So it's like, well, now I'm really thirsty and I'm going to put this ball of ice in my mouth. You know what I mean? The snow immediately surrounding direct fuselage was also tainted with airplane fuel, airplane fuel, human waste and whatever else had come out of the, the crash. Within the first couple of days, they established designated pooping and peeing spots, which like helped this. But there was also the fact that the snow froze solid every night. This meant that they would have to expend quite a lot of energy hacking away, trying to get enough to drink. And energy was another scarcity. So one of the guys discovered that all of the airplane seats actually contained a square of thick aluminum foil. I call it tin foil. <laughs> You know, us in the business call it tinfoil. <laughs> but yeah, when he would take this square of thick aluminium. Tinfoil. Tinfoil. When he would take this square of thick tinfoil, which he folded so one could dump a pile of snow onto it, which would then melt thanks to the heat of the sun on the reflective surface. And like the water would run down a little channel into whatever vessel they had to catch it, which would have been like the wine bottles and stuff that they had had. So... This was an activity that some of the injured could like partake in just to keep their like mind busy, you know, and it also benefited everybody. But this also highlighted some of the other hardships that they were facing. The snow, which was so hard in the morning that you could barely break it, soon became so much unnavigable slush after about nine o'clock in the morning that moving around became almost impossible. 
On top of all that, the fuselage of the plane had skidded to a halt at just under 12,000 feet, so the little energy that the survivors could extract from the extremely limited rations was also subject to the thin air of the extreme altitude. One of the passengers wasn't actually injured, but he was permanently debilitated by altitude sickness. So Javier Metho and his wife Liliana were some of the like seat fillers. Mm-hmm. Remember, like, so these were one of the older aged couples that like kind of just tagged along for the cheap flight. And it was Javier who suffered with really awful altitude sickness. Extreme dizziness and nausea meant that he could hardly move. Now, Liliana played an integral role, both as a sort of com- as a source of comfort for the boys and as a kind of nurse in those first few days also. Javier had been sick, like, I can't remember the exact details. I, I wasn't going to go into it, but basically something bad had happened to him, like when he was around 18 or 19 and Liliana actually took care of him mm. for a long time. Like it was really like a testament to Liliana. Um, they since like were married and had three or four kids. I can't remember how many exactly. So Liliana just had that like natural caregiver mm. thing about her. And I think I'm not a doctor, but I think because of Javier's past injuries or sicknesses, that's why the altitude sickness like really mm. messed him up, you okay. know? Now, if you remember from last week, the guys had also been told by one of, by the one and only surviving crew member that they would be able to get the radio working if they managed to get the batteries from the tail. Did I say mm-hmm. this last year? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> from the tail of the plane, which was like nowhere to be seen, right? Mm-hmm. The plane broke off. And they hadn't seen it since. But the tail also held the possibility of more food, more suitcases, which meant more layers to prevent the cold. And there was also the possibility that there were more survivors. An expedition would be carried out to get a bit further up the mountain in the hopes of seeing the tail, or at least to try and get an idea of where it could have ended up. The boys had witnessed just how treacherous the deep snow could be in the first few minutes after the crash when they watched poor Carlos Valletta disappear when the, while they called out to him. So along with designing the snow melters, one of them, uh, Fito or Fito? Mm-hmm. Fito. Fito. Fito found that if they strapped the seat cushions to their boots, uh, they all had rugby boots. So that was something at least going for them, you know. But if they strapped the seat cushions to their boots, they worked as a kind of snowshoe. So armed with these new snowshoes and wearing socks for gloves, a group of four headed out at seven o'clock on the morning of Tuesday, October 17th. Now, they made it a fair distance. Uh, I think they like this is painstaking, right? I think they were able to walk something like 20 paces and then they would have to stop and take a break Mm. because of the altitude sickness and stuff. But they did make it a fair distance and they went for a couple of hours. But even before the snow started to melt, it was tough going. And then when the snow did soften and it was time to adorn their new snowshoes, it wasn't long before they were completely soaked through and heavy. Like these things must have weighed a ton. Made sense. So Roberto Canessa, remember our loudmouth friend from last week, he was the first to admit defeat, but the rest outvoted him to continue on. Within a few minutes, though, another lad, Fito, sank waist deep in the snow just inches from a deep crevasse. Now that scared them back to their senses and they like quickly turned back. They were like, okay, yeah, no, this is not worth it. Like, mm-hmm. like those crevasses just disappear into blackness. Like, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? So barely five days of rations and these rugby players were already 
realizing that what they had was just not enough to sustain them, let alone get them back to civilization if help really wasn't on the way, you know? So Nando Parado, who was hell-bent on escaping, had already floated the idea of eating the pilots if it meant getting out of the mountains. I think some of the boys thought that this was like just his frustration because like he then said, after all, they got us into this mess. Mm. Which, I mean, I can understand, like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But after this failed expedition, eating the pilots was starting to seem like not just a very real option, but the only option they had. Now, I've been saying this, okay? This is a horrific story. And I know that not all of our listeners can stick through some of the more harrowing details. And believe me, I've left out a lot, okay? But this story is a testament to the strength of the survivors. And I think that's what we have to remember while we're listening. These are real people going through a very real situation. That being said, things always get worse before they get better. So that's your warning, okay? After the failed attempt of that first expedition, the lads returned sullen and a little bit beaten down. On the eighth night, Susanna Parado died in her sleep while her brother held her. The guys had managed to get a little portable radio to work with the help of a sketchy little aerial that just about picked up signal as they moved around just right. So mostly what they picked up was political debates that were apparently ongoing between like Chile and, I don't know, like local politics or some crap. But on the 11th day, they heard an announcement. All commercial and military planes flying over the Cordillera were to keep an eye out for the wreckage of the missing flight because the official search was being called off. Oof. It was the 11th day, remember? Yeah. Upon hearing this, Marcelo, the team captain, who had been so strong in guiding his team through this travesty, just put his face in his hands and broke down in despair. Oh. Now... Leading up to this devastating news, the boys, who, like, I keep calling them the boys, but the, the group, right? Because there's also Liliana Mithal, mm -hmm. who, her and Susanna were the only ladies to actually survive, and Susanna died. Um, but yeah, there is Liliana left, who had taken on the role of, like, not just nursing, but keeping the peace and being, like, a pillar of support. Like I said earlier, she had three or four kids back at home and she just naturally fell into the habit of being a mother. But throughout all of the survivors had been murmurs and mumblings over the food situation. Some people, and I would feel this way, uh, felt that those that had died would want to have their bodies used to help get the survivors back to safety. Mm. Others argued that it was not right. Now, they also were like very heavily religious you know mm. and this really weighed them down in the debate they were you know saying this is against what the bible says so it was the elephant in the airplane until on the 10th day roberto canessa piped up and said we all need to have this discussion out in the open right because like i said last week there was kind of individual groups and teams which like just like naturally happens when a big group of people are hanging out and even not that big so they'd be like there was three that were all cousins and they would be in like having their own arguments and blah blah blah. but like somebody would overhear that and then take that back to their friend and be like you know what i heard like, yeah i think it, fito actually was one of them so roberto canessa loudmouth as he was 
that's needed sometimes, you know. So anyway, he pulled it out in the open. And Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> they were all very familiar with each other at this point anyway. Um, but arguments were made. Nobody was heated or like ready to punch one another. But ultimately, Knessa and a few others went outside and prepared some meat from one of the bodies in the snow. Now, they weren't like greedily feasting or anything like that. Like that's what people just automatically kind of go, they're animals. They did, you know? Yeah. But they weren't. They were like, we need this nutrition. This was another food source that just needed to be utilized and rationed in order to help them get out of this nightmare. So he prepared 20 matchstick sized slivers and left them to dry on the plane for whoever wanted. Right. So I think that meant one each. Mm hmm. Upon hearing the news that the search had been called off the following day, more people joined in in the eating of this new ration. And when Pedro Algorta rationalized it, that it was really no different to eating communion, right? Christ died mm -hmm. for our sins and we mm -hmm. eat his body every Sunday. This really helped other people feel much better about partaking, right? Because that was like... Their main in, concern. Yeah, and they were in like this awful situation and like... With the co-pilot and stuff last yeah. week, they they wouldn't even allow him to kill himself because no, no, no like it's wrong. it's a mortal sin or whatever. Right. But I think that same day, another expedition set out in search of the tail. Now, these guys were even less prepared than the first bunch, but they followed the path the fuselage had forged through the snow and made it to a somewhat sheltered spot by nightfall. All three of them thought they would die from exposure that night, but Somehow, they made it through, warming themselves in the sunlight the next morning before struggling on. Eventually, they found more bodies and an engine, but no tail. They also found from their higher vantage point, the fuselage was almost invisible. And they were not on the edge of the Andes, as they had been led to believe by the pilot, but completely surrounded on all sides by nothing but snowy peaks. So they decided to head back down to the fuselage and figured that they could use some seat cushions that they had come across as sleds, which made the way back down much easier. Mm. Um, one of them actually ended up going snow blind, though. Oh, from yeah. <laughs> sorry, I messed up on the notes. But yeah, he went snow blind, like literally after one day of being out in the sun um, because... Like, how innovative these guys were is unbelievable. They had cut up, like, a tinted visor that they had found in the cockpit to make, like, makeshift sunglasses mm -hmm. so this wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. Like, how many people would even be clever enough to know that that was going to be an yeah. issue, you know? But unfortunately, this chap's sunglasses broke along the way. And within just a couple of hours, I think, he was almost completely blind. That's crazy. Yeah, and... He, he was actually really scared as well because of, course, of this, you know. Yeah. Then, on the 17th night, after they had said their evening rosary and tried to go to sleep, the unthinkable happened. So like I said, it gets worse before it gets better. Okay. There was a faint vibration and then suddenly the plane was almost completely filled with snow. Roy Harley, who had just seconds before switched places with another lad, had jumped up when he heard the noise and appeared to be the only one not completely buried. He was waist deep in snow and frantically started to dig with his bare hands. But even as the snow settled, 
It was forming a thin layer of ice on top. He moved where he could see hands poking up through to help free whoever he could. And in the chaos that followed, those that became free would help the next person and so on. Roy scrambled to the entrance where there was now only a small hole where once there was a gaping mouth that they had struggled to block. One by one, the boys clambered to free whoever they could until eventually 19 of them were left sitting in the tiny amount of space afforded to them by the avalanche. They lost eight in the avalanche and some of the survivors would say that they were the best of them. Carlos Rock, uh, who was the crew member, Juan Carlos Menendez, Enrique Platero, Gustavo Nikolic, or Nikolic, uh, Daniel Maspons, Diego Storm, Liliana Metho, and their captain, Marcelo Perez. In the hours after, they sat there trying to warm each other and get some non-existent sleep. But then they started to feel lightheaded, and they realized that the plane had become completely entombed. They were suffocating. They crawled to the entrance, but the snow had frozen solid, so they couldn't even punch a hole through. Eventually, they got a metal pole which they had been using to hold up a makeshift hammock for the more seriously injured, and they smashed a hole through the roof of the place. Having no idea how deep they were buried, they used cigarette lighters and this pole to eventually poke a breathing hole in the snow. This hole served as their only window to the world above, so they watched to see when the sky would change from night to day. That following day, they worked as hard as they could to get out of the plane. They actually had to go through the cockpit where the pilot's corpses were still in their seats. And when they managed to poke a head out, they found that they were in the middle of a blizzard. Right, so they just decided to stay put, scooping fresh snow whenever they could for drinking water. And this went on for another day after this as well. They had nothing to eat and no way of getting to the supply outside the plane. So on the second day, they had to help themselves to one of the avalanche victims. Now, this was even harder for them as like before there was more of a separation. Okay, like not all of them saw where the meat actually came from, you know, and it was just like outside in the freezer because everything was buried. But now there was no avoiding it. Some of the survivors were forced to eat because it was eat or die. So their teammates literally forced it into their mouth. On the third day, they managed to get out into the sunshine for a while, which like lifted their spirits. And over the next eight days, they worked at getting the plane into a more livable condition. The wall of ice remained where the entrance once was, but they had dug a tunnel through and they saw the wall as like protection. Should there be another fucking avalanche? Because I bet none of them even thought of that in the first place. You know what I mean? Yeah. And over the next few days, they decided that they would need to have a team of dedicated expeditionaries and those guys would get a little bit extra food every day. They would get the prime sleeping spots and basically would be kind of pampered a little bit. Mm. Nando Parado was going to be one of them because he was literally ready to leave at any minute. And this was the only way for them to make him stay put. They were like, we get it. But if you go out there on your own, like you're not going to get anywhere. You know yeah. what I mean? So this was the only way they could get him to stay put. Roberto Canessa, our loudmouth, he was another. Antonio Vizintin whose nickname was Tintin. He had proved himself after a mini expedition and then finally Numa Turcati. 
Uh, a lot of these guys had like German and Italian parents as well. It mm. was like a big immigrant area, I guess. They would hold off until mid to late November because that would make it officially summer where they were. So one of the guys had said that November 15th was supposed to be the beginning of warmer weather. I'm not sure where he heard that, but like that was the day that they all settled on. Then they were like, oh, well, you know, 15th of November, that's what we're pushing for. And while they were bracing themselves for this trip, somebody stepped on Numa Tarkati's leg, presumably while trying to get in or out of the plane. But like something so simple in this situation, it actually left Tarkati with a bruise that went septic. And ultimately meant he was like bitterly taken off the expeditionary cruise the crew. Fuck? Yeah. So I had to Google. I was like, how does the bruise even go set? Like it's extremely rare by the sounds of things. But because he was so malnourished already, mm. like it was just. Anyway, November 15th came around. Boys had been stranded on this mountain for 33 days. Damn. And this would be their biggest push to try and get themselves rescued so far. They had Canessa, Parado and Tintin loaded up with as many supplies and clothes as they could spare and off they went. Not long afterwards though, they were back because of inclement weather. They cursed Pedro, uh, <laughs> Pedro Algorta, who had suggested the 15th but they got over it and they tried again two days later. They headed down the mountain after going over the plan for weeks. They had like maps and stuff but they didn't really know where they actually were so they were guessing. And Canessa, Canessa marched the head of Parado and Tintin. When they eventually caught up with him, as he waited on the crest of a hill, he said, Tengo una sorpresa para ti. Right? Yeah. I have a surprise for you. The boys had found the tail of the plane, oh. which had for so long been the object of fascination. Like, they found clean clothes, warm woolen socks, a bottle of rum, four meat-filled empanadas, and a box of chocolates. Uh, for anybody who doesn't know what an empanada is, it's basically like a little meat pie, right? Yeah. Really nice, actually. Like a hot pocket. Yeah, kind of like a hot pocket. Uh, they feasted, and for dessert, they had a spoonful of sugar mixed with toothpaste in half an inch of rum. All right. It's delicacy in the Andes, apparently. They spent the night here, and then motored on the next day after having the best night's sleep they had in weeks. Um, Because the tail actually did contain the batteries, like they had a light. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like the vault or the, the charge had kept up that they were able to turn on a light at night, which was like, That's cool. they sat there reading comic books and shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was luxury. The second night, though, was not so nice. They were now facing energy depleting heat from the sun during the day and freezing temperatures at night. They dug a hole in the snow and wrapped themselves in the blankets and whatever else they had. But... As the night wore on, it got colder and colder and they actually ended up sleeping on top of each other, like literally, like not just like really close together. Someone was on the bottom, someone was in the middle and someone was on top. Mm. And that's the only way they were able to survive that night. Like Jesus. that day, Canessa became less and less hopeful that the path they were taking was even going anywhere. He convinced himself that they were actually going deeper into the mountain range. And that third morning... The boys decided to go back to the tail, try and get the batteries out and get back to the rest of the survivors and get the airplane radio to work. Because right now they only had that little regular, what was it, transistor radio? Yeah. Like obviously they couldn't make calls out on that. I feel like just in case you have younger listeners, mm. that's not how those radios worked. 
the boys back in the fuselage, it's such an awkward way. The boys back in the fuselage were having a terrible time. Another of the survivors had passed away from his initial injuries and the only thing keeping their spirits up was the idea that the expeditionaries were on the cusp of finding help. They were quite literally waiting for the sound of helicopters all day long and hoping all night long that the next day would be the day. So when they saw their three friends come back over the horizon, there was a bittersweet disappointment. They told them what had happened and that they had at least brought some fresh clothes from the tail, which the boys desperately needed. The radio expedition was a failure, okay, because they got back, they rested, and they were like, we know where the tail is, um, but the batteries were too heavy to bring to the fuselage, and it took days to get the radio out of the cockpit and back down to the tail. But once they got there, it was hopeless. Like, none of them had any radio building experience, you know? They had to give up. But at least they had more time to re-up on whatever other supplies they could find. Tempers were really beginning to fray by now, though. And to be honest, I think the fact that they all hadn't been at each other's throats constantly is a credit to them all. But patience was definitely wearing thin. They had believed that the avalanche had happened for some sort of divine reason. Mm. The people who had been killed were almost a sacrifice from God, right? That's kind of how they were just dealing with this madness. And those who had survived had survived for good reason. But now even those survivors were starting to die, be it from weakness, infection or a combination. As well as this, they were now even starting to run out of bodies. Even with their skimpy rations, their supplies were dwindling. They had to start digging in the snow for the remains of those lost in the initial crash, which was time consuming, energy consuming and fruitless most of the time. They had found a new determination though. As desperate as their situation was, they wanted the three expeditionaries to get back on the horse as soon as possible. That's a figurative horse, mm. not a literal horse, which I just confused myself with. <laughs> they had heard over You're the... You're like, what? There's the horse? Yeah, well, because the parents were on horseback, remember? Uh... So I was like, wait, did I like skip something here? <laughs> they had heard over the transistor radio that the search had started again, but they had learned not to get their hopes up and... Interestingly enough, the author said that there was also a sense of pride in wanting to save themselves by now. It had been around 60 days since the crash and they felt that they could and they felt that they could last until the expeditionaries got to a farm or some sort of human civilization like. Mm -hmm. So they got to work sewing together a sort of sleeping bag for the three boys, right? With Canessa, Parado and Tintin. These three boys were being held in a kind of like warrior class, mm -hmm. you know, they used insulation from, I think, the seats and the walls of the tail, or sorry, of the plane and electrical wire ripped from the tail. Parado was admittedly useless with his hands, but he did take pictures with the camera that they had found in the tail. Right. So now they're documenting their survival. Like, just think of how... Uh, like how strong-willed they were at this yeah, point. They what were kind like, of headspace are you in? Yeah, they're, they're thinking like, when we get out, we're going to have these pictures. Yeah. The show of our time. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that was their mentality. It's like, it's not if we get out, it's when. Yeah. But they did say that Parado was always extremely helpful and, and willing. Often being the first one out of bed and doing whatever he could. 
like even though he had this like warrior class thing where they were supposed to be looking after him mm-hmm. Kanessa on the other hand was becoming a bit of a bollocks though oh. he kind of abused this warrior class and was very aggressive with the other guys but anyway armed with whatever they could carry including lipstick and liquid foundation to try to stop sunburn and wrapped from head to toe with whatever clothes they could put together the expeditionaries headed out again on december 12th 60 days after the crash parado had bought his nephew a pair of little red shoes and left one in the plane while putting the other one in his pocket, telling the lads, not to worry, I'll get it when I come back. This time, they went straight up. They planned to reach the top of the steep slope by nightfall. The snow was soft, and with each step, they were knee-deep in wet, cold slush. They could see the rest of the lads watching them, and the lads could see them as they made their way slowly upward. So this kind of put a lot of like pressure on them as well, right? Yeah. They did not reach the summit before the sun went down, though. They huddled next to a boulder sticking out of the treacherous mountainside and had a restless night. They didn't reach the summit the next day either, but they did have to wait until their boots defrosted before they could head out again. That Their boots got so wet the night before and it got so cold during the night that they were frozen solid and they couldn't even get their feet back into them. On the third day, Kinesa became convinced that he could see a road way back past where the fuselage lay and wanted to try and get all the way back over there and see if he could reach it. Parado begged him not to and suggested that he should just stay with the bags. Mm-hmm. He's like, look, you wait here. Me and Tintin are going to go like see if we can do a kind of a speed run to the top without all this stuff weighing us down. Just so we can like literally get a lay of the land, you know. Have you ever heard of a false peak? No. Okay. It's a bastard, basically. <laughs> As you're climbing or even just hiking, um, you see what looks like the top of the mountain. But really, it's just a rise in the ground that blocks the top of the mountain. Okay. So from where you stand, you're like, oh my God, there's the top. It's right there. Then you get there and you realize, fuck. There's more mountain. There's more mountain. So the three lads had had their fair share over the past couple of days. But finally, around midday, Parado reached the top of the gigantic peak. The ground suddenly lay flat. And there was about 12 foot of level ground. That's like about the width of this room and a sheer drop on either side. Like these boys were like, this was no gentle slope. Like they were literally climbing all the way up this thing for three days now. Wow. And the worst thing was he expected to see the Pacific Ocean, farms, villages, towns. But all he saw was more mountains. Mountains as far as the eye could see. And for the first time, Parado felt so deflated, he felt like he could give up. But the initial disappointment was soon washed away by his insane resolve when he saw, in the distance, mountains that had no snow on their peaks. And he thought, that's where I'm going to go. He shouted for Tintin to go and get Knessa. Tintin was a little bit behind him still. And Knessa was not impressed initially. But Parado convinced them that they could do it. They only had ration for 10 more days for the three of them. But they reckoned they could make that stretch to 20 if they sent Tintin back to the plane. Mm. I really like Tintin. Full name, Antonio Vicintin. Mm-hmm. Um, he was strong enough to keep up with these two lads and happy to help in any way that he could. 
but he didn't have the big ego of Knessa. Like, he was, to be honest with you, I kind of, like, related to him mostly out of this mm. whole story because, like, Parado had this mental, um, like, desperate dedication to getting out. Mm-hmm. Knessa was just a big, stubborn, angry bollocks. Mm-hmm. It was like, I'm going to do it because I'm the man. And then Tintin was just in the middle, like, lads, look, it's whatever. You know what I mean? He was always the deciding vote, like, in yeah. whether to press on or go back or whatever. But aside from that, he had actually severed an artery in his arm in the initial crash and managed to recover, like, that nobody realized that at the time, you know? Yeah. And when the two boys suggested that he go back to the others, he was only too happy to oblige. Like, now at this point, they're having dreams at the top of this mountain of like oh, i just wish i was back in the fuselage with the lads like that's yeah. the safe place that's home for them now so they camped out that night where Knessa had left the bags they went back down and the following day tintin headed back and the two lads continued west i'm pointing this way i don't know where west was right it was december 15th and the survivors sitting outside the fuselage saw something coming flying down the side of the mountain now, initially, they thought it was a boulder, but it started to become clearer as it got closer. It was Tintin. <laughs> he had used one of the seat cushions as a sled and literally slid the whole <laughs> way back down, right? So a journey that had taken three days only took about 45 minutes getting back down. Oh, wow. And I actually think there's a, a scene in The Simpsons when uh, Homer gets stuck on, like, the Matterhorn. Remember he was sponsored by some, like, energy bar or something? Yeah. And he uses, like, one of the dead bodies that was up on the fucking mountainside. He just slides all the way back down. So now I'm starting to think, like, The Simpsons got their idea from this. <laughs> but Knessa and Parado took it easy that day. They didn't try to make any progress. They just rested and headed out the following morning. Remember, this was sheer drop on the other side. But once the gradient of the slope on the other side became safe enough, they also started sledding down. And by the next day, they were at the bottom of the mountain. After another couple of days of hard going, the boys found themselves in tears. They had found where the snow stopped, and they were surrounded by lush greenery and birdsong. Wow. So they slept well that night, more comfortable and warmer than they had become used to. And the next day, Knessa thought he saw cows in the distance. And then they came across the first signs of civilization when they found a rusty tin can. It was a Maggi soup can. Is oh. it Maggi or Magi? Or? I don't know. I, I knew the brand when I saw it anyway. Not wanting to get their hopes up, they pressed on. The next day, they found that their food supplies were starting to go bad because they were no longer in freezing temperatures. So this was a new concern that they had to deal with. They had no other food and it was making them sick. Like it was quite literally rotting meat. The following day was one of the toughest. They discarded of what they felt they wouldn't need. But Knessa had extreme diarrhea and no food was obviously making them weak. But they were so sure that they would find someone that day that they pushed on until Knessa could literally not go any further. So things were looking bad. And considering all that they had been through, this meant that they felt that they were really close to the end one way or another. They awoke at six o'clock on the 10th morning and there on the other side of the seemingly impassable river that they had slept by that night was smoke from a fire. 
some horses and three men. Vaqueros. Parado ran to the edge of the gorge and waved and shouted and got their attention. The river was too noisy, but the man wrote something on a piece of paper, which he tied to a rock and threw across the Parado. The note said that he had sent someone around and that they would be there later. Tell me what you want. He then tied his pen to another rock with his bandana and threw it across so Parado could respond. I come from a plane that, this is a quote, <laughs> I come from a plane that fell in the mountains. I am Uruguayan. We have been walking for 10 days. I have a friend up there who was injured. In the plane, there are still 14 injured people. We have to get out of here quickly and we don't know how. We don't have any food. We are weak. When are you going to come and fetch us? Please, we can't even walk. Where are we? So these vaqueros, which are like cowboys, ranch hands, they're dirt poor, right? Mm. They're literally, I'm almost sure this is in Chile. I actually can't even remember at this point. But they are mountain people. Like. Mm -hmm. So the boys later said that their own clothes were actually in better condition than these men mm. after over two months in the fucking wilderness. But the man, but the man threw them a piece of bread and later... Around nine o'clock, the other guy showed up on horseback. All he had was a piece of cheese. But like to the two expeditionaries, this was luxury. They had bread and cheese for the first time mm -hmm. in like 70 days or something. Mm -hmm. The guy on horseback still had to go and like tend to his cattle. So he left them and came back a couple of hours later. Because as well, at this point, like they're not entirely trusting of these people. Like they don't know who they are. And uh, like this story is unbelievable, you know. Mm -hmm. But when he came back, he put Canessa on his horse. Parado wouldn't get on the horse, though. He walked and this man guided them to a tiny little house in a meadow. Sounds like a dream. Yeah. And by 12 o'clock on Thursday, December 21st, the lads had eaten bread, cheese, fresh milk, four plates of beans, pasta and meat. The vaqueros had already sent someone to alert the authorities, but it was a long ride back into the town. It's only like 12 hours on horseback, oh, right? Oh, shit. So they were, that's how far out they still were, yeah. even after 10 days of walking. And like I've said, or I think I've said, I've had to leave out an awful lot from this story for time purposes and all. But the parents of the boys, a lot of them had like given up very early on, mm. which again, I probably would too. Like, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, the plane crashed in the middle of the freezing cold mountains. So understandably, after the few false alarms and all that. But a lot of them were still actively doing whatever they could. Unfortunately, they had enlisted the help of some Dutch medium who had caused them to literally look in the wrong place for a long time. But Carlos Paez Valero, Valero uh, who had gone out on horseback and all that stuff in order to fulfill his promise of finding his son. He had never given up. On December 21st, he was actually flying back to Montevideo and was attempting to smuggle a puppy onto the plane <laughs> so he could surprise his daughter for Christmas when he was detained by officials. And he was like, oh, fuck. he literally had the puppy in a pocket, an inside pocket of his jacket, right? <laughs> I'm scared. So he thought he had been busted over the puppy. But he was known to these guys because he was so active in the search. Mm -hmm. And they showed him the note, which at that time was potentially fake. So he was astonished. Roberto's, Roberto Canessa's dad had landed in Buenos Aires that morning and was in a taxi when the driver asked him if he'd heard the news. 
obviously not knowing who Dr. Canessa was. So hordes of reporters had like made their way out to the remote cabin where the expeditionaries were enjoying all of the Vaquero's food and hospitality. Canessa was examined by doctors and was deemed stable, but Ferrado refused any help and insisted on guiding the helicopter pilots back up to the fuselage. Now, these pilots were in disbelief when he told them where he had come from. But like, they were, those mountains were so high that he could turn around and say, that peak right there. Mm. That's where we're like, just the other side of that. And they were like, okay, yeah, whatever, kid. Like, let's, you know, see what way he takes us and see if we can find the rest of his team. But he literally guided them step by step like from the air all the way back up because when he initially looked over the the mountain and saw the mountains that had no snow it was in a little v-shaped valley mm-hmm. so he had already seen this aerial view yeah that he was now looking at from the helicopter like mm-hmm. the boys in the fuselage had some weird inkling that their expeditionaries had made it and they were busy trying to tidy up their campsite which had become a pretty terrifying sight by the sound of things literally human remains were scattered all over the place they were also planning what they would say to their chilean rescuers so one boy said if they offered him a cigarette he was going to refuse saying no no no, i've got my uruguayan cigarettes right here thanks i'd rather not (laughs) um because so this is a little bit off track but two of the guys actually worked for cigarette factories or companies in Uruguay so that was like the one thing that they didn't have to worry about was their cigarette supply anyway then they heard the sound that they had been waiting over 70 days to hear helicopters rescue salvation half the guys were taken back down to the cabin which was made uh, which was made base camp and the other guys had to wait until the following morning but they spent the night with some of the rescue crew and finally on December 23rd, the last of the survivors left the fuselage, which had been home for 72 nights. The fuselage, which had once been described by the author as a dark, narrow tunnel of moaning, screaming humanity. Fernando Parado, Roberto Canessa, Carlito, Carlitos Paez Rodriguez, Jose Pedro Algorta, Alfredo Pancho Delgado, Daniel Fernandez, Roberto Bobby Francois, Roy Harley, Jose uh, Coach, Coche, Jose Coche, Luis Inquiarte, Alvaro Mangino, uh, Javier Mesal, Ramon Sabea, Adolfo Fito Strouch, Eduardo Strouch, Antonio Tintin Fitzintin, and Gustavo Zerbino. 16 survivors out of 45. Now, their ordeal wasn't quite over either. They were persecuted because of what they did in order to survive. And they all had to go and they all had to undergo some sort of medical treatment. But if you want more details on that aspect of the story, read Alive, the story of the Andy survivors by Pierce Paul Reed, or even watch that Hulu documentary. If you like, like I said, you're going to get more detail out of the book. But there's other books about it too that have been written so far. I just picked the one that I read because I knew it was not the most authentic or the best, but the very first 
set of interviews mm-hmm. to come out of it. Um, also, according to Wikipedia, all of these guys, except for Javier Methel, are still alive. Oh. Yeah. Now, I don't know how accurate that is because a lot of them have actually never spoken about it publicly, mm-hmm. um, as far as I know. But Nando and Roberto have spoken about like they're actually on the Hulu documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we like we will watch the video as well. Um, but yeah. All right. So, yeah, like that was a tough one. Yeah. But holy shit. Was that a good story? And like Nando got his nephew's shoe. Shoe. Yeah. Good on good job. Yeah. Um good job telling the story. Yeah, it took us a while to get through it. Um oh yeah, obviously then like the press made shit of them all because they were like they resorted to cannibalism and all this mm. kind of crap. Yeah. But that's why uh most of the boys have never actually spoken out about it. Um and then also like because I didn't want to just list off the names of all of the people who didn't make it. Mm-hmm. But like if you are curious, like go on like Wikipedia, go anywhere, like they have full details and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um I do have some pictures to go along with this. Some of the photos actually from Nando Parado's camera that he found. Oh, cool. Yeah, so there's a lot of like really well documented stuff. And uh yeah, hope you all enjoyed. Yeah, I certainly enjoyed it. Yeah, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're at 282 as of recording this, but I really want to hit a thousand just because it's a nice round number. (laughs) Don't know how realistic it is, but anyway, um, if you would like more stuff like this, let me know other stories that you've heard. Uh, We'll be back with a true crime-ish story next week. And uh, yeah, love you all. Subscribe, rate, review, do all that kind of BS. Thanks for being here. Join the Patreon. Go to Amazon for our wish list. And uh, reach out to us on Instagram. Yeah. Drop us a line. Yeah. Bye. Bye.